The story is all too familiar by now. God made everything in its place, its time, and in such a manner that it brought him glory. The nature reflected his character. And as we discussed last week, the serpent tempted Eve. And in the midst of her temptation, in a moment of pure, unadulterated, selfish ambition, she thought to herself what she might gain. The ability to be like God. He had only every, ever given her everything that she needed from his generous hand. But at the core of this selfish ambition was the fact that she doubted that he was generous at all. That she doubted that she had everything that she needed. That she thought to herself that there surely must be something that God is withholding from me. She doubted his goodness. She doubted his provision. And in some total, she doubted his godness. Falling into sin yields tremendous consequences. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our series this morning is that these consequences were not just for Adam and Eve. They were not just for the serpent, Satan. But the consequences of sin that happened on that day are consequences that each and every one of us have to bear. And they are terrible in their effect. We pick up the story with God walking through the garden. I want to ask you to turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 14. God has walked through the garden. He has found out Adam and Eve and has confronted them. And now he is about to clarify for them or even to pronounce upon them what the consequences of this sin means for their life. This is what he says, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, 
because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is a devastating pronouncement for Adam and Eve. And it's a devastating pronouncement for all of God's people. Last week we saw that following Satan's deception leads to our destruction. And this week we see in part two very plainly that the devastation of sin knows no bounds. And the curse that is pronounced here in Genesis chapter 3 seemingly affects every area of our life and our existence. It involves three figures. It involves Satan, it involves Eve, and it involves Adam. Let's look at them individually from the text this morning. And I want to do so in reverse order. Starting with that first devastating effect of sin as it's pronounced to Adam in verse 17. Look at it with me. We see that this first devastating effect is the perpetual struggle that we're going to have in our work. Because of Adam's sin, God says the ground is cursed and this results in toil. And the reason given for this, found in verse 17, is that he listened to or obeyed the voice of his wife. His sin was certainly more passive in nature than hers, but it was no less sinful. And this reminds us of that very reality. As you walk through the daily challenges of this life, passive sins are still sins. They're still just as offensive to God and just as devastating in their effects. Now the practical implications of sin here are plain to us all. How many of you have ever had a job that you didn't like? Okay, so only half of you actually go to work. How many, how many of you have a job that you still don't like? Work isn't supposed to be that hard. It's not supposed to be that unpleasant. God describes this difficulty as a direct curse on the ground itself, which will result in the difficulty of growing food. Now anyone here who has ever farmed knows this to be true. From the world's perspective, farmers are the biggest gamblers in the world. Because their whole livelihood happens partially by their hard work and partially by an environment that they cannot possibly control. From a spiritual perspective, I was talking to a seasoned pastor just about a month ago, and he said farmers are the most faithful people in the world. They have to be. Because they rely on God for the weather, for the soil, to produce the things that they cannot produce themselves. Adam ate the fruit, and so he would experience toil in eating. Verse 19. The punishment of this difficulty to find food is an ongoing reminder of sin in this world. 
God's word directed at Adam, then following in verse 19, put him back in his place very quickly, didn't it? He and Eve were striving to be like God. And as much as they wanted to be like him in their eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said to them, remember that you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. We tend to think of that as a poetic expression that we use occasionally at funerals. But make no mistake about it. This is a word of judgment upon them. They had strived to be like God. And their ambitions for divinity were ultimately thwarted. They would die and return to the very ground from which God had made them. The devastation of sin knows no bounds. The second piece of this devastation is found in verse 16. And that is the perpetual struggle between women and men. God directs this two-part consequence to Eve. The first is straightforward, and when you stop to think about it, it is terrible in its timing and its effect. He says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now anyone who's ever had children knows that the birth of a child is a wonderful and unique and profound experience. When people talk about remembering that moment when they saw the little person come into the world, is filled with a sense of emotion. It's filled with a sense of joy. I remember the moment that our first daughter, Alexa, was born. And I thought to myself, how could I love someone so much who I've never even met before? How can all of a sudden this little person crying in front of me cause me to want to sacrifice almost everything and anything I have for this little person that doesn't even have a name yet? The birth of a child is overwhelming, it's joyous, it's wonderful. But it's been tarnished. Because in an attempt to grab a different life for herself, the consequences of Eve's sin is that life-giving would now be painful for every woman in history. The most profound design of the creator, a baby being birthed by his or her mother, would be met with tears, with complications, with screaming, and with pain. The second part of this consequence of sin is found in this perpetual struggle between man and woman. Someone once said that marriage is like twirling a baton or turning handsprings or eating chopsticks, eating with chopsticks. It looks easy <laughs> until you try it. You've all heard that expression, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. No, they're both from the Garden of Eden, but they might as well as be, be from other planets after the fall happened because the tension, the ongoing tension between men and women in this most intimate relationship that we have on earth is a direct result of what we see here, this sin in Genesis chapter 3. 
If you look at verse 16, there are a couple of different possibilities of what this means. Look with me. God says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the word desire simply means to long for, and it can be used in a variety of ways. She could be, or this could refer to her desire for his positional authority in their family. It could refer to her desire, her maternal instinct for childbearing, in which he exercises dominion over her because it takes two in that sense. Either way, the picture isn't good. She has a longing or a desire for something from him, and he is unwilling to give it. And in turn, he gives a harsh, heavy-handed rule or dominion over her. The picture is not pleasant. And we've seen this throughout history, and we see it even today, don't we? Far from being loving husbands, many men have exerted their physical strength in such a way that exercises dominion over their wives. And I don't need to elaborate on the details of abusive relationships, but suffice it to say, the beginning of that starts to happen right here. Her desires aren't morally neutral either, and his actions aren't morally neutral. The most intimate relationship that we've been given on this planet, the relationship between a husband and wife, is now marred by sin. Contrary to healthy leadership, harsh male dominion is the ongoing reminder of this fallen state of humanity. Sin taints our work. Sin taints childbearing. Sin taints our marriages. And the devastation of it knows no bounds. Look with me at verse 14. Here we see the third devastating effect of sin. And this is found in how God addresses the serpent himself. The first part of this curse is directed to the one who brought evil into the world, Satan, the devil. And verse 15 begins to hone in on this important reality of this that will last through all time. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Who is the offspring of the woman? Verse 20 would go on to tell us that Eve is the mother of all the living. The enmity that occurs here is going to happen for all of humankind. And who is the offspring of the serpent? Jesus goes on to tell us in John 8, 44, as he's engaging with some of the Pharisees that are trying to thwart his work, he tells very directly, you Pharisees, you who are trying to stop the things of God, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. There will be a perpetual struggle between Satan and humankind. There will be a perpetual struggle between the followers of Satan, which is really anyone who rejects the work and ways of God and the followers of God. And this will happen throughout all of history. Verse 15 continues to say that he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this points to this ongoing struggle 
will have in life. Anyone who's tried to pursue the ways of God has encountered this struggle. It's a battle with your flesh, isn't it? You know what it's like. You know what it's like to have, figuratively speaking, the temptation of Satan continually striking your heel. Whether that is that desire to overindulge in food or drink, the desire to gossip, the desire to lift yourself up and knock others down, the sexual desires that so often are difficult to control. The list goes on and on and on. It's back and forth. It's a wrestling match in your flesh. It's a striking between a snake and the offspring of a woman that show a lifelong battle in sin. This is a struggle that we know all too well. It's a struggle that if you stop seriously and try to consider where your life fits in this world and how you might pursue God more faithfully, you will encounter along every turn. And sometimes you'll make decisions for faithfulness to God and seemingly that's it. You pursue faithfulness. But often you will make a decision for faithfulness to God and you will be encountered with difficulty, with attack, and with temptation. All along we know this to be true in our own lives and we see it in those around us. But here we see in verse 15 that there's even hope. There's a description, a little glimpse of what is to come and we'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's take a step back for a minute and consider the implications for this pollution of sin in our lives. It seems to have no end. One scholar says that they sinned by eating and so they would suffer to eat. She led her husband to sin so she would be mastered by him. They brought pain into the world by their disobedience, and so they would have painful toil in their respective lives. And the serpent ruined the human race, and so he would be destroyed. As long as sinful life exists, all of this evil consequence will continue. And it gets worse because the consequences of sin are not just concentrated in the human nature and our propensity to keep sinning. When we were banished from the garden, the greatest consequence of sin was found in a loss of access and presence to the person of God himself. They would no longer enjoy his unique and immediate blessing. From now on, he would be distant. They had everything they needed and so much more. They were in complete harmony with each other, complete harmony with the creation. Their work was fruitful and enjoyable, and they had complete harmony with the person of God. He was near to them. And if you think for a second that banishment from the garden, paradise lost, was the greatest aspect of this punishment, consider that the greatest aspect of loss wasn't the place. It was the person. The greatest loss was God. And that's what sin does. John Walton explains that the most vile aspect of human sin is not what it did to each of us, 
but what it did to God. Our sin is a desecration of God. This desecration does not alter who God is, but it dishonors him. It can be compared to the disrespect done to a country when a flag is trampled on, torn, smeared with excrement, or burned. The country doesn't suffer in the process, but a patriot will jump to its defense nonetheless. And in a similar vein, the most lamentable result of sin is not that it makes people bad, but that makes God distant. The story we see through the whole Old Testament is a story not in which people are trying to regain paradise of the Garden of Evil, a Garden of Eden. The story that we see through the Old Testament is that people are trying to regain a nearness and access to the person of God who they have driven away because of their sin. The sin that happened in the garden is indeed the sin that's passed down to me and it's passed down to you and the consequences are passed down to me and to you. And the offense and the desecration is something that we also commit. And as a result, there's distance. And I want, I want us to understand something very clearly here because this is important to know. Our biggest problem in this life is not the sins that we commit. It's not the actions of sin per se. Those are an outworking of the bigger problem, and that is the sin that is in my life. Our biggest problem is that we are polluted with sin. Sins are the individual actions, the outworking of this disease that we have, this curse that we're under this nature that's been given to us. Now, most people go through life and they think that as long as their good deeds outweigh their sinful deeds, then they stand on sound or healthy moral ground. This is because they focus on sins, not the pollution of sin. But let me explain it to you this way. Imagine with me that all the choices in your life consists of a gallon of water that is right in front of me. And all the choices in my life consists of another gallon of water that is right in front of me. And the sins that we commit are represented by a cyanide pill that is dropped into that gallon of water every time we commit one. Now, you are an exceptional person. And so maybe you only commit six or seven sins your whole life. I'm a morally bankrupt person, and so I'm popping pills in that gallon of water like it's Tic Tacs to my three-year-old. Now, when we come to the end of our days, what is the result going to be? Now, surely my gallon of water will have a higher concentration of the poison than your gallon of water, but at the end of our days... We both have poisonous gallons of water. And this is where Jesus comes in. Imagine a person comes along that says, don't drink that poisonous water. You're standing on the edge of eternity and if you drink that, surely this will be the undoing of you. 
Drink my cup of clean water or my gallon of clean water instead. It contains none of the poison that yours does. And I will drink your poisonous water in your place. Because sin in any amount desecrates God's character. It separates, from, separates us from him. It causes us to be worthy of judgment. And we stand on the precipice of eternity. Any amount of that poison within us means no access to him. We continue by our very nature, our very presence to drive him away. Jesus, God's only son, enters the world. He takes the poisonous penalty of our sin. He reaps the consequences of it on our behalf when he dies on the cross. He simultaneously offers us his clean, his pure life that we may again have access, restored relationship and eternal relationship with God. He says, don't drink the cup of death. Drink the water of life. And the gift comes to us simply by putting our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. He not only cleanses you from the sins in your life, but he purifies you from the sin in your life. The destruction of sin knows no bounds apart from Jesus. But Jesus saves us from the devastating effects of sin and he restores us to God. I love the big picture redemptive plan for as hard as it is for us to hear about all this terrible stuff that is a result of Genesis 3. And when we really stop to sit back and look at what this means for our lives practically, if you look about at your work, as you look at your marriage, as you look at your childbearing, as you look at this ongoing struggle with sin in your life that you've had all of your days, these things should keep you up at night. But I love the redemptive plan that is be offered just by glimpse in Genesis 3 and in full effect as we look forward to God's plan in Scripture. Just consider a couple aspects of it with me. To the snake, God says, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately, the head of this serpent, the devil, will be destroyed. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12 or verse 14 reminds us that Eve's offspring that would bruise his head was ultimately Jesus himself. It says in Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Another part of this redemptive plan is found in the reality that for humankind, when they were created, they gained paradise. A perfect picture in the Garden of Eden. Perfect relationship with God. When sin entered the world, paradise was lost and the relationship with God was lost. But we see through Jesus, paradise is coming again. John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. And you know the place where I'm going. And the disciples say, well, I don't know how to get there. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In other words, paradise was gained, paradise was lost, but paradise is coming again. And there's a way to have that paradise, to have that nearness with God, and to even have a proximity to God that results in all this continual blessing to the person and work of Jesus himself. The third part of this redemptive plan that we see is that in the garden, people are cast away from God. They're banished. But through Christ, people are brought near to God again. Again, John chapter 14, starting at verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You get a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So not only have people been banished from the presence of God, cast away as a result of the sin of the garden, but in the person of Jesus, not only does God draw them back near to him, but he indwells their very person. He gets nearer to them than he's ever been before. And this is part of his redemptive plan for those who put their faith in him. Part four of this redemptive plan is found in the garden we see a pollution with sin, but in Jesus we see a cleansing from it. 1 John 1, 9, a verse that so many of you know well, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know that there are so many of us here today that desire to have that feeling of cleansing. Maybe some of you feel like God is far away because he is far away from you. Some of us have thought for a long time that as long as the scale is tipped toward my good deeds over my sinful deeds, then I'm going to be fine in the long run. But that does not deal with the core of the issue. And the core of the issue is that we need to be washed clean, purified, cleansed, yes, from our sinful actions, but even more so from our sinful state. Some of us have professed Christ and continue to dabble, to engage, or to minimize the importance and the devastating effects of this sin in our life. And for all of us, the message is clear. Faith in this Son of God, Jesus, counteracts the devastating effects of sin and restores us in relationship with him. So as we pray today, I want to encourage you on a couple of lines. Number one, as we talked about last week, again, let the heaviness of this reality sit upon you. Don't let it escape, because when it escapes, then you begin to trivialize really who God is and where you fit in relation to him. Number two, if you are here today 
and you've never put your faith in Christ, you've never been cleansed, you've never been on this redemptive plan, you've never been brought back near to God again, the way that you do that is through simple faith, that you would confess your sin to God, that you would express a desire to be forgiven by him, and that you would trust him to do just that. And then you begin to follow him with your life. If you want to do that today, you have an opportunity to do so as we pray together in just a moment. And finally, for Christians, take this seriously. Jesus says, those who love me do what I command them to do. That is to say, they don't dabble in this old nature. They pursue this new nature. And be encouraged, be thankful, be rejoicing in this ongoing work of the person of God as he saves us from this ultimate problem. That we would not have chosen for ourselves because we were not in the garden, and yet make no mistake about it, we choose it for ourselves almost every day as we continue to sin, don't we? So please pray with me as we thank God and ask him for his help. Father, the devastating effects of sin are, <laughs> are easy for us to see as we live in a world with multiple wars happening at the same time, as we live in marriages that have strife and struggle, as we have a country now that is again defined by contentious political elections and racial tensions throughout the country. God, the continual devastation of sin is known to us in our own personal lives as we feel the weight of it, as we know it to be true, as we long for something different. So God, I ask for each one of us today, first for those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, but that desire to, that today would be the day when we confess our sin to you and rely in complete dependence, that we do not want to drink of this gallon of poison, but that we want to drink of the cup of life. So Father, we pray that you would forgive our sins that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we would grow in trusting you more and more, and that our salvation would be found in you. Amen.